listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 269. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Hey, san, We're back! Back again. As we always come back yeah. after each week. <laughs> Even when we say we, we are done. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Especially if we say it on 1st of April. Yeah. yeah. That's that's what happened. Exactly. But I, I really hope that our listeners don't mind us coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, guys, we, we've talked uh, so much about languages uh, recently that uh, I've been looking for stuff uh, about different languages, how that the etymology of different words, and so I'm I'm really stuck with that. What about you? Yeah, it's actually really interesting where words sometimes come from. For example, yeah, if you just take the word nice, it's actually from nescius, which is Latin for ignorant. Is it? Yeah, and, wow. and pretty wow. is from I can't really pronounce it, but it's something like pretic, <laughs> which is, means cunning. Mm-hmm. So okay. it's wow. really interesting where that yeah where where words sometimes come from and they have really surprising roots at times, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, we I, I know that I've seen some documentary about uh, Shakespearean plays and stuff and how a lot of the puns and and the the word the words mean something different or meant something different in Shakespeare's time, and some of the words that no longer rhymes actually did rhyme. Ah. Oh when he wrote the plays so it was a pun it was so actually when you look at it uh, even if you think you understand it you're probably missing half the fun yeah. <laughs> because yeah. you, you don't know what is what they're talking about it's so cool i remember at one of my schools there was a teacher an english teacher of mine who was really fascinated with old english and he brought in old English texts and uh, excerpts. And it was really cool to listen to and to, to try to read and figure out what it meant and, and what the words meant. At university, I had a teacher who also really liked old um, English and mm-hmm. he read some of that to us. And finally enough, me with like my bit of knowledge of Dutch and <laughs> being a German, I could understand a lot, surprisingly much of that. <laughs> I can actually imagine that. Wow. That's really cool. All right, <laughs> <laughs> and there are expressions as well, and there are there are sayings and and idioms and and uh, that uh, make a lot of sense when you when you figure out where they come from. In your countries, was at some point in history, syphilis called the French disease? <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, Spanish I don't disease, think so. and yeah. Well, blame the foreigners for it, right? No, a, a lot of uh, Hungarian uh, writers and and people of the high society in the 1800s, they have had a tendency to go to Paris and visit a couple of red light places. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where I think the, the name comes from in Hungary. Mm. And we have a saying, Menya France, but it means go to the France. And that originates from that thing that that it was called the french disease and it's probably the greatest insult you can say to anyone because <laughs> you basically wish them all the bad things that come with syphilis 
it's it's really interesting where where words come from um in that regard and also like mm -hmm. well COVID itself is a word like that where people in in a few years will be like huh it actually is an acronym i didn't know that <laughs> yeah mm. so yeah at the end there is id so it means that you're being tagged if yeah. you're vaccinated yeah yeah More on that later. I mean, <laughs> not being tagged, but being vaccinated. <laughs> exactly. I also um, remember the saying that is a uh, bread, butter and green cheese is good English and good freeze. Did you know that before? What? <laughs> Never heard. What did you just say? <laughs> Because in Frisian and in English, the words for bread, butter, green and cheese are the same. Aha. Uh -huh. In uh, Frisian, it would be something like bread, butter and green and cheese. <laughs> butter. So it's pretty much the same word. Butter. Isn't that Cockney or something? Yeah, and also Frisian, for example, apparently. Do you want some butter? <laughs> no, some cheese, please. All right, but unfortunately, this is not the European linguist show. ELS. <laughs> the E, I, never mind. It. This is the European Skeptics Podcast, so we might have a couple of other things to talk about on this episode. One of them is what happened this week in Skepticism. Yes, and this week something really cool happened, and that is that Comsep was found on the 5th of April 2012. <laughs> Comsept being... And that stands for Comunidade Skeptica Portuguesa, mm -hmm. so Portuguese Skeptical Community. Mm -hmm. And they were founded to promote rational and critical thinking about paranormal and pseudoscientific claims from a scientific point of view. Mm -hmm. And they also talk about um, conspiracy theories and disinformation. They were founded as a citizens movement in 2012 and got registered as a legal association in September 2016. Mm -hmm. They founded the movement in, on a meeting in Cumbria. So they uh, launched the website there and also started monthly gatherings called Skepticos Com Vox conference. So skeptics with a voice. And they also have a conference called Comseptcom, <laughs> where they also award the Flying Unicorn Award since 2013. Mm -hmm. More about that later. <laughs> <laughs> and their president is Diana Barbosa, who was on the podcast at least on episode 5 and 116, at least what Google told me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Comcept even published a book in 2017 called Don't Be Fooled in Portuguese. I won't say it in Portuguese again. <laughs> Why not? Give it a try. No. <laughs> so happy birthday, Comcept. <laughs> yes, well done on them. And they have these the coolest uh, logo of this flying unicorn and, and yeah. everything. They're, they're really great. <laughs> <laughs> such a cute thing. Okay, thank you very much, Annika. And uh, <laughs> thanks for doing such a great work uh, at Concept, Diana, Joao, and the others. All right, so shall we find out if Pontus has something to poke the Pope for this week. Well, actually, I think we'll give him a rest this week. He has been very religious uh, last week <laughs> because it was the... Is it not worth poking him for? And that's for him to recommend. <laughs> the, the Easter week. So he didn't have time for a lot of mischief. Uh, so I, th I think we'll skip it. I think we have plenty of other things to talk about this week. Yeah, that's right. And one of them is COVID-19. <laughs> And again, the elephant in the room is that freaking AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. Yeah. Can it actually be the cause of those very, very rare 
but lethal cases of unusual blood clotting that some countries have reported. We are still waiting for the announcement from the European Medicines Agency's Pharmacovigilance Risk Assessment Committee, or PRAC, I think it's a better name that we can use, to announce what their latest findings were. But the latest update on the EMA's website uh, regarding this question says, and I quote, a causal link with the vaccine is not proven, but is possible, and further analysis is continuing. Well, in the meantime, some countries are still not willing to vaccinate with the AstraZeneca stuff, but there is some other development as of late. Marco Cavaleri, who's the head of vaccine strategy at the EMA, he did make a much bolder move and said to the Italian newspaper Il Messaggero that the link with the vaccine was clear. He said in the interview that there was higher than expected number of occurrences of blood clotting in young people. But the mechanism through which this could happen is yet to be found. So this is interesting. Obviously, anti-vaccination activists jumped on this right away and started quoting him like crazy because he's a very high-ranking official of the European Medicines Agency, right? But the announcement I mentioned earlier is expected on Wednesday or Thursday this week. So by the time this goes out, we might be in the know of what the EMA's findings are. And yet the EMA remains positive that the benefits of the vaccine still outweigh the risk of dying of blood clotting related issues. Well, I think we all get that, but good luck trying to make people choose this vaccine after all this. Mm. Yeah. Especially since the headlines only say the link between the AstraZeneca vaccine and death from blood clotting are confirmed. This is all that the headlines are saying. So how can we expect people to trust the vaccine and even go for it? We naively think people have a statistical approach to things like this. It's nonsense. No bloody way. (laughs) You see what I did there? Okay. (laughs) That would mean that kind of statistical approach. Individuals are required to actively take risks while the alternative is just skipping vaccination and doing nothing. And of course, hoping they, they won't catch this horrid thing called COVID-19. But this is not realistic. I mean, people's minds don't work like that. And I'm sure it will set the whole vaccination program back a little. People will not go, yeah, I'm taking anything but the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. No, they will try to refuse everything, at least in larger than uh, previous numbers. I received an email, (laughs) I have to say, from my GP, a couple of days ago, surveying patients about what vaccines we are willing to take. Let that sink in a little bit, that this is how deep this shit is now. We are asking the obviously so well-informed public about what they want to take. I understand there might be counterindications to some vaccines due to certain pre-existing conditions, but, but it wasn't what they asked me about. It was which one I am willing to take. And there are not many other things that we approach our health like that when it comes to trusting our our GPs, right? Right. And you don't ask the patient for what kind of treatment he wants. Exactly. You are the one that's supposed to know (laughs) which one is best for that patient. 
it's just madness. Uh, no weight of expert opinions are there anymore. Uh, just ask them the pages about what they want. It's ridiculous. But it could feel like a good idea. like Or like, of course, I want to be consulted before they do anything. But if you go to the mechanic with your car yeah. and they ask you, do you want me to replace the spark plugs? How the hell should I know? That's your job, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a good analogy. Yeah. yeah. So we should have that same approach when it comes to, to doctors and healthcare, but we, we don't. And even people of the risk group, based on their age, they are unwilling to take some vaccines that are available and there, and they are willing to wait a couple of weeks until they can get the one that they want to have. Which is like weeks, sometimes you don't have weeks, you know. Exactly. What if during those four or five weeks, you catch this fucking thing? It's just, I, I, I don't know. Mm. And, and it will definitely uh, hinder the, the rollout. Um, and puts an extra weight on the GP's shoulders as well, an administrative kind of job now that it becomes, that they have to reorganize everything, the whole order of vaccinations, because some vaccines people are not willing to take. But they have already been pushed to the extreme when it comes to things that they have to shoulder. So I wouldn't want to be a GP uh, right now. Uh, not that I wanted to be that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but of course, there are those who are lucky enough to, to have already been vaccinated. Some countries are really falling behind with the rollout, though. Others seem to take a different approach. Hungary, for example, is, is leading the countries in the EU with the number of vaccines administered. Did you know that? Mm, no. no. <laughs> and that's due to the large supply of Sputnik V and Sinopharm vaccines right. that have been approved by the Hungarian Medicines Agency, but not the EMA, right? At least not yet. So the question is, is the Sputnik more popular than the AstraZeneca at the moment in Hungary? It wasn't a couple of weeks ago, but that might be because this whole thing about the blood clotting uh, situation had not emerged back then. Mm. So I, I, I will mention um, a survey that has been done in some countries in Central Europe. So, yeah, that's basically about those vaccines, that we have a great advantage because of those being available to us. Sputnik V, did you know that it's it's currently under review by the EMA? Uh, no, but I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and um, there was a Lancet uh, report that uh, said that it looks absolutely promising mm -hmm. and the results are absolutely good and they look absolutely safe. So no worries. We should probably consider using them. So um, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping for that to be the case. My brother-in-law just got the Sputnik V vaccine and um, yeah. He cannot speak anything else but Russian as of now, but <laughs> who cares? Hey, if I could learn languages through vaccines, I would totally get all the language vaccines. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, no, I would, I would get anything available. <laughs> so the, the Chinese vaccine is not, not even being uh, reviewed as we speak. Uh, the Sp Sputnik V vaccine is. So there's another reason for people being picky with, with uh, vaccines. Now, both Eastern, so-called Eastern vaccines, are, are being frowned upon by other European countries. So many people fear they, they would not be able to travel outside of Hungary should they be vaccinated with those because of the rejection of those vaccines for political reasons mostly. Right. 
which is not nice in a situation like this. We've already talked about that, I, I, I believe, a couple of episodes ago, that it shouldn't be politicized to this extreme. Because travel seems, seems extremely important now to millions of Europeans. People just want to go out and move and get, get their asses off their chairs and get outside. But many, many people do. But, but trusting vaccines is not easy to achieve especially with all the politics at play, as I mentioned. A positive trend, however, is uh, what a recent survey by Political Capital reveals from countries of the Visegrad group. F for those who don't know what the Visegrad group is, do you know? No. no. It consists of four Central European countries. It's a, a form of alliance between these countries, former socialist countries, um, Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia and Hungary. And the numbers in the survey show a recent increase in vaccine acceptance, which is very promising. What the survey also revealed is that the more people trust their country's government and public healthcare system, the more inclined they are to accept the vaccines. Not very surprising, is it? No. Interesting no. to see the support for those vaccines coming from the East, though. The only country among the four where they are actively being rolled out is Hungary. In all the rest, it's a matter of massive political debates, including Poland, where earlier this month they said that they would not accept a vaccination with those vaccines for people who want to enter their country. It, well, as the science is getting clearer by the day, I really don't see the point in rejecting all those. Being vaccinated is better than not being vaccinated. Speaking of which, what can you and shouldn't you do? after getting the jab because there are enough people already vaccinated to raise that question well first of all do not assume you're fully protected just because you've been vaccinated a few things to consider in order for you to develop the full level of immunity you can achieve with any vaccine requires time and the number of doses recommended by the manufacturer which is two jabs with most vaccines the exception so far is only johnson and jensen which in turn has a lower effectiveness level when it comes to protecting you against falling ill. By the way, effectiveness, never underestimate statistics. Even if the vaccine you've been given has a 90-odd percent effectiveness rate, you still have the chance to fall ill. But you probably heard this Pontus that the, the Swedish Public Health Agency published the numbers of, of people vaccinated and those among them who tested positive afterwards. I actually didn't see that, no? but uh, I'm not surprised. But the, again, it's the headlines. The headlines say that 200 people tested positive after having been vaccinated. But come on, out of how many? <laughs> because there are hundreds of thousands of people that have already been vaccinated in, in Sweden. So out of those 200 falling ill doesn't really mean that it's, it doesn't work. So it's far less than 1% still. I get that. It's not zero, but it's far less than 1%. Even the There's no vaccine that is 100% effective. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Because no, nobody is the same. <laughs> uh, uh, we have to say that also that uh, most of the vaccines currently available help you avoid getting seriously ill right. and dying of the disease at close to 100% which is why we need to do this in the first place. <laughs> mm. Even the WHO Europe region warns us against a false sense of security, though. Their concern has, has more to do with the slow vaccine rollout, because it's very slow. According to their numbers, the region has seen 10% of, of citizens get their fir first jab, and only 4% has gone through a whole vaccination cycle. 
So that's very, very low. We are struggling here in Europe to get the, the, the vaccines rolled out properly. That is way too far from the desired 60 plus percent of the population to even begin to talk about herd immunity. Not to mention, when it comes to herd immunity, that we still don't know how effective the different vaccines are in preventing transmission. For herd immunity to be achieved, you should get that as well. Yeah, but it looks promising, doesn't it? It looks promising, but we cannot be certain at this point. So don't go kissing and hugging people just because you're vaccinated. And certainly not before you've got your second shot. A false sense of security is not only a worry for the public, but also for authorities. Because countries' authorities have different approaches. You know what Orban's government is planning to do now? They are starting the vaccination program for teachers in the next days. Mm -hmm. But they want to send everyone back to school in less than two weeks from now. The only thing they care about is that we beat everyone with a fast rollout, so he can parade as a fucking hero and say to the European leaders, I told you, referring, of course, to the approval of the, the Sinopharm and uh, Sputnik V vaccines, that I was the good guy because I took those vaccines. But at the same time, you know what we are really think, uh, ranking high at? I mean, Hungary? The number of deaths per day. As of the day of this recording, we are ranking third worldwide. Oh, wow. Hmm. So much for, for the vaccine rollout solving every problem. And, and Hungary <laughs> did fairly okay last year yeah. for a long time. Yeah. But yeah. now, yeah. you know, yeah. shit has hit the fan. Absolutely. And all they care about is that vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. But it's not going to do the job, as we know. Because adherence to the rules is very, very poor in general. So that's how well we are doing. Yay. Oh. And uh, last but not least that I want to talk about, sorry, I've, I've for, for a long time I didn't talk much about COVID-19 and I, I just had a lot of things to, to get off my chest. <laughs> and there, there have been a lot of things happening recently as well. But um, have you heard the latest craze where people, they're equipped with, with some gadgets like, like USB camera microscopes and, and fancy cameras that can do very cool macros. They claim there are tiny worms a parasite moving in the freshly opened face masks. <laughs> what? They're supposed to be d dormant when you buy the, the mask and coming to life. So they're already there when you buy them. Exactly. And they're coming oh. to life only as you breathe on them. <laughs> so they're freshly manufactured and they put them like a sprinkle of worms and then you, they send them out, the mask. Exactly. That's how they do it. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. Isn't that spooky? It's, it's really cool. Too bad it's all debunked <laughs> by uh, DPA and Corrective, both German fact-checkers. Um, DPA even posted a, a video about these masks where a biologist explains everything and shows us how these filaments, the microscopic-sized filaments inside the mask, not an integral part of the mask itself. And as moisture comes through the system, the web, of it of the mask then it behaves a little bit differently as it didn't stick very well to the textile that's about it oh. so it's it's really not worms that are wiggling there ferociously <laughs> but this didn't bother any celebrities in germany the uk hungary and other countries they just picked up the story and ran with it proving only that even idiots can become celebrities <laughs> which is too bad but uh <laughs> We've known that for a while. <laughs> Sometimes it's the other way around, too. <laughs> Celebrities <Yes>. become idiots. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it could be that Yeah, as well. 
So, uh, yeah, Ooh, I feel much better now that I got all of that out off my chest. Which means that it's time for us to do something about just regular news. Well, you uh, say that, but we're still going to talk about COVID a bit. Okay. <laughs> because I've read an analysis from the UK about excess mortality in Europe in 2020. So we're recording this early April, right? Yeah. So we need to remember that these numbers are, are uh, three months old. But we've been talking about this for a while on the show. How do you m- measure which countries are doing badly and which countries are doing better? And it's not easy because you can measure this in so many ways. But the Office for National Statistics in the UK has analyzed the excess mortality in 2020 in European countries. And what's a bit different with their analysis is that they haven't just compared how many more people died per million or per 100,000 inhabitants compared to previous years. They've also adjusted the numbers to take uh, demographics into consideration. So they've corrected uh, for changes in age and, and sex between years and between countries. Uh And that makes it a better comparison uh, as to how hard the countries have been hit compared to how you would expect them to be hit, if you will. And, And this is on mortality in general, not just for COVID, because they say we don't know, it's hard to see which deaths are COVID and which are not. We're just going to look at overall mortality. So also, just a a side note, being a UK-focused organization, they they regard England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland as countries, so they have (laughs) data points for them as countries. But um, that doesn't matter, really. You're comparing regions. They're also comparing cities and, and other regions, but I'm going to talk about the countries only. And they did two analyses one for the first half of last year and one for the full year. So, what's the score? The big reveal. Who did well and who did badly? Well, mm-hmm. f- first thing you can say is that a lot of things have changed over the year. Many countries that were hit hard in the first half of the year has since done better, and some countries that did very well initially were really bad at the end of the year. So, for example, Czechia. They actually had a lower mortality than expected uh, after the first half year because they were taking preventative measures and maybe the the virus hadn't really hit them. uh, And so they actually had less deaths than expected or what they should have, or how would you want to phrase it. But in the last half of the year, things turned around very badly for them and uh, they did really bad. Uh, they ended up at fifth place for the full year. And you don't want to be on first place because that's the country that did worst. Mm -hmm. But let's try to summarize the full year, uh, starting with the ones that would hit the hardest. So Poland had 11.6 higher than expected mortality, more than 10% more deaths than they normally would have. Spain had around the same 10.6%. Belgium had 9.7, Bulgaria 8.9, Czechia 8.4, Slovenia 8.2, followed by England, uh, not UK, this is England only, uh, on seventh place with 7.8. So all of these countries were roughly 
Well, if you round it off, it's about 10% uh, higher number of deaths than was expected. However, some countries did better than expected, notably countries in Scandinavia like Estonia, Finland, Latvia, Denmark, Norway and Iceland. They all had between 3 to 6% lower mortality than was normal, if you will. Uh, a little bit uh, randomly joined by Cyprus, who was also below zero. Sweden did worse than its neighbors, uh, except for Lithuania, which was about the same. So Sweden ended up on 18th place with a score of 1.7% higher mortality than expected, which I think is much lower than, than a lot of people think it was, because Sweden got a very bad reputation, especially in the first half of the year. Hungary, Andras, did just slightly better than Sweden at 1.6%, but that was then. We're talking about 2020, yeah. 2020, <laughs> so yeah. that's, uh, it's coming back. It's, so it's still changing, right? It is. Annika, I'm, I'm afraid Germany couldn't be included in the study, because <laughs> Germany doesn't report their numbers, official numbers, broken down by age or region, so they couldn't do the adjustment to compare them with the others. Yeah, we do it differently. <laughs> you do it differently. So we, I have no idea where Germany would have ended up on this chart. So we've taken up the difficulty of comparing different countries in Europe before. How can you measure who did well and who did not so well? And I think this is the best attempt I've seen so far. But there's no perfect way of doing it, and uh, this is just one way. But we will put it in a, a link to the to the study in the show notes if you want to study it in more detail. As I said, it, they also compared larger cities with with each other and par different parts of. Uh, regions of countries and there's even an interactive uh, map there where you can click on your particular region and see how you did uh -huh. if you're interested uh -huh. that sounds really cool actually yeah my statistics can be sort of fun <laughs> yeah. not not that this is a fun subject but uh, statistics is cool as you say yes it's something really fascinating Something that fascinates me is a new book that is out <laughs> by Heike Kleffner and Matthias Meissner. And it's called Fehlender Mindestabstand, die Corona-Krise und die Netzwerke der Demokratiefeinde. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> oh, I'm going to run and buy it now. Yeah. 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 Based on this title. It, yeah. <laughs> the actual book is shorter than the, the title of the book. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the book is actually just the title. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what the title means is Missing uh, Minimum Distance, The COVID Crisis and Networks of Enemies of Democracy. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's about the uh, phenomenon of people who are against science, democracy and an enlightened society. And they look at, and not only with COVID, but also with other topics like climate change, um, vaccinations, 5G, whatever, like you name it. And they looked at uh, Germany, France, Austria, and the US. And um, it's a collection of essays of several authors, about 40 authors, <laughs> mm -hmm. like Pierre Lamberti, Michael Blume, or um, Stefan Anpalagan. So it's a collection of a lot of well-known German writers. And it really looks at the problem of people um, yeah, being against an enlightened society, against democracy, against science and against um, COVID procedures, pretty much. Mm. Mm. 
All right, moving away from COVID, COVID and moving away from Earth. Ooh, <laughs> big jump. <laughs> are you in the rocket already, Andres? Okay, me too. <laughs> D- did you know there are spiders living on Mars? Uh-huh. Yeah, Doctor Who had an episode about that, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and David Bowie had uh, something to say about that, right? Yeah, and uh, those are huge ones actually massive measuring one kilometer across each those are massive beasts and uh, they they are really the shape of spiders or something something that resembles that and uh, it's been going on for a while that they wanted to 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 find out what they were these are things that orbiters around the planet have found and uh, they are indeed very weird looking the poles of mars have sparked scientific interest for a long time and the South Pole has been known for these weird-looking somethings that lacked a viable explanation uh, for a long time. It started around 2000, uh, I think 2003 was the first publication that mentioned them and um, and tried to come up with an actual explanation of what they were. And the researchers of the 2003 study hypothesized that the spiders, the, the spider-looking things on Mars, could form because of carbon dioxide ice or dry ice as it's called uh, sublimating it's when something of a solid state comes to a gaseous state instead of uh, liquidizing first and this is what happens to carbon dioxide all the time and uh, they they wanted to know how it can these weird shapes can form under the surface as these gas bubbles start to work. But it was only a theory. And researchers at Open University in England um, decided to to, to test the the hypothesis and um, they built a complete Martian model of the the Martian situation, including the atmosphere, including the the, the soil. But uh, they did test the hypothesis their lab this experimental design is called the open university mars simulation chamber and there were sediment grains placed in the right order uh, varying sizes of the grains uh, inside that chamber and all the conditions they tried to mimic of that of mars the the martian atmosphere and what the the experiments proved is that these spider-like sublimation hypothesis can actually work so it means that such a thing that really looks weird and even some ufo believers grabbed this by the tail and ran after this the, the situation it could actually provide so this is how science can actually give you answers it's not easy it's never easy with planets outside Earth of our own, <laughs> right? <laughs> because you cannot just go there and experiment and test your hypothesis. But if you try to model the atmosphere, if you try to model the circumstances as thoroughly as possible, and you try your hypothesis, if it works in the lab, it might be able to work in situ. How how it works is, no matter what the sediment grains sizes are the dry ice contacts them and the the color of them helps them heat up by the sun and obviously this is why it's happening in the spring of that 
hemisphere. And uh, as they are, they are contacting the dry ice, the gas starts escaping, and as it pushes upward and onward, it's carving these weird shapes into the sediment. It's really cool. So there are very cool pictures. Actually, the scale is, well, much uh, uh, smaller. (laughs) So we're talking about a couple of meters for the the whole setup. But it can still work. So it's pretty cool. There you go. And uh, speaking of something that has been tested on Earth, uh, mimicking the situation of the Martian atmosphere and uh, giving it a try in situ, Ah, uh, there is this. It's it doesn't have anything to do with uh, Europe, but it's just fascinating. The first ever helicopter on another planet is about to launch. Uh, the first step has been made that it had to perseverance the big car size. It's it's the size of an SUV, and it had to drop this little helicopter to the Martian surface without damaging it obviously and this part is over it is done now it's waiting for all the checks to go well and when it all happened they will launch this helicopter ingenuity right and um, Mm. it will attempt its first flight on mars on the 11th of april so it's gonna be on sunday this week so cool yeah stay tuned and look up for the news i think the next day it will be all over the news that uh, the first ever flying of a helicopter on a different planet has happened absolutely amazing right really cool cool <laughs> so speaking about flying things let's go back mm-hmm. back to concept and their flying unicorn <laughs> <laughs> yeah. because on 1st of april last week april fool's day mm-hmm. our friends there at concept uh, announced the winners of the flying unicorn award and this is not a prize you want to win folks uh, it's uh, given <laughs> to persons or entities that during the previous year contributed to the spread of pseudoscience, superstition, and other forms of disinformation. And this year's announcement uh, of the prize for 2020 was uh, dedicated especially to the memory of James the Amazing Randy, Mm. who so sadly passed away last year. And of course, we talked about that uh, on the show. Uh, So they honored him this year with giving out this prize, which is perfectly in his spirit uh, and the winners were or should we say the losers uh, it was the doctors for the truth or in portuguese medicos pela verdade and that's probably pronounced totally different but that's <laughs> my best shot at it so the doctors for the truth and this group of doctors are peddling lots of scam which is, of course, so-called alternative medicine, and uh, have during 2020, and I still are, I believe, uh, spreading disinformation about COVID and the pandemic, including, but not limited to, believe it or not, tips for possibly infected people not to test positive on COVID tests. What? So they've actually given advice. If you think you have the disease, this is how you can trick the test not to show positive. <laughs> Drink a lot of milk. <laughs> wow, that's such a responsible approach. <laughs> wow. I, I, I don't know how you do that, so hopefully that's all nonsense as well. Yeah, that was a joke from me, just to clarify that. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> but if it worked, it's really 
crazy. I don't know why would you do that. It's very strange as well because it's not just extremely harmful if it would work, and I don't think it does, but if it would work. But it's also strange that they give out this advice because the doctors for the truth seem to deny the actual existence of the disease. So how can you be positive and hide it when... Positive is not something you can be because there is no disease. I don't. I you struggle sometimes to to follow the logic of these uh, cranks. Uh, they're also anti-mask and anti-COVID restrictions and bloody bloody bloody. Several members of the organization have received penalties from the Portuguese medical board, and they seem to be very worthy winners of this uh, flying unicorn award. Sounds so. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. It's funny how, like, it's always that, like, doctors for truth, <laughs> for truth, or for uh, enlightenment, or whatever, and it's never for that. It's always against science. <laughs> it's always, it is indeed. If you put truth or democracy or something like that in the name of your organization, that probably is a red flag that you're not for that at all. I mean, we're not the truth podcast, right? We are skeptics. You doubt things if you if you're honest. But um, anyway, if you have heard of other uh, organizations or persons that you feel are worthy of this prize for 2021, the nominations are already open and we will share the link in the show notes where you can post your nominations and also see the rules for how, how you can do that. I think I've talked on this show about our new initiative that we are following the example of several European organizations Mm -hmm. of offering a prize to proper idiots. (laughs) And uh, it's going to be called the Flat Earth Prize. And we decided to start the, the, the first phase of this will be an absolutely open public nomination process where people can not only nominate but they can also vote right away on the nominees. Ah, okay, yeah. And one of them is a pharmacist who's been become absolutely famous or, well... Infamous. I should, I should probably say infamous yeah. <laughs> for uh, denying the, the COVID situation and um, arguing against wearing masks and, and, and all that jazz. And he is accompanied by a couple of doctors and they call themselves doctors for seeing clearly (laughs) (laughs) and they are absolutely leading the charts by far him alone and his whole company so uh, those are the two first on the list of nominees and they are leading the charts like crazy (laughs) so um, i don't i don't know who else we can uh, give the prize to at the end but uh, we will have to go through the process properly and that is the hungarian skeptics it's the Hungarian skeptic yeah. sitting, indeed. Yeah. All right. As for nominations, we've been watching for years what the brilliant British charity, Sense About Science, does. And one of their initiatives is a joint one with uh, the, the General Nature. It has been going on since 2012 on an annual basis, and it's about awarding researchers for standing up for science, especially if that activity has been met with significant pushback or even hostility. And that is the John Maddox Prize. Uh, sometimes that's one. Other years there are, have been two winners, and uh, recently they added a prize for someone at early stage of their career doing some kind of work that standing up for science means. Nominations are welcome from all countries of the world, and the search for nominees is on for 2021. 
now until the 14th of June. So if you know someone who you think worthy of such a prize, do not hesitate to nominate them. The scientific community can show their support through this prize and it could actually make a difference. Past winners, as we always mention them at this time of the year, include Professor Edzard Ernst, Simon Wesley, Elizabeth Loftus, G. Susan Jab, Britt Mary Hermes, and even Anthony Fauci. Mm. So as you can see, the list is very diverse. Why don't you make your nomination while you can? Until the 14th of June. Here, here. Very good. Yeah. And someone who would actually maybe even um, deserve uh, or like classify for a nomination for the Maddox Prize are Joanna Oberska and Mariana Gaida from Poland. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because these two students, they noticed something I also ran into, and that is that some medical and other students have big gaps in their knowledge of vaccines. And when they were hesitant about vaccines, they usually didn't change their views even after years and years of medical uh, studies. The two students, they wanted to do something about it and created a program for high school students. First, they said, maybe we start with our peers, but then they thought, huh, usually the views have already fossilized by then. We should start in adolescence. And then they went to high schools where they, uh, in the program, they explained vaccine development, clinical trials, vaccine safety and manufacturing, misinformation and vaccine skepticism and more. Um, they present vaccines from the perspective of people living 100 years ago. So we can see how much of an impact vaccines had. And that was um, what I just said it was about four years ago. So in that time, they grew and improved even more. They have now reached 8,000 students in Warsaw and other Polish um, cities. And they trained 80 peers to also do that. And they um, just received an EU Health Award last year. So well done, Jana and Mariana, because this is really inspiring and really good and important work. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is indeed. Oh, my God. Uh, great to have good news from uh, Poland. Yes, <laughs> we need <laughs> it. <laughs> a lot of bad news coming from there lately. Well, I think we're, we're all in need of good news just in general. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, this is exactly what we need to finish the news segment on. And uh, since that was the last one we wanted to share with our listeners, uh, we're moving on to finding out who's been really wrong lately. All right, some of our listeners may already have heard about this because it's a few weeks old, but I think it's important enough to, to be mentioned. There is a Dutch veterinarian called Gert van den Bosse. And again, I apologize for, for the pronunciation, but something like that. And he has been making a lot of noise about how the current vaccination efforts will only make everything worse. Uh, so he's a nut job, and uh, there are many of those. The problem with this guy is that he's very scientifically sounding. So it's, it's that's the most dangerous kind of crank there is. Mm -hmm. Among the things that he claims are that the vaccines will only keep people from getting sick, not from continuing to spread the virus. And we've talked mentioned that already this episode. We believe that that is wrong. There's a lot of evidence coming forward now that the vaccines also prevent spreading of the disease. So following from that premise, which is, I believe, wrong, he claims that vaccinating people will only drive the formation of new variants because the virus will start to mutate more to adapt to the vaccines. 
And in the end, all the vaccines will be useless and we will be sitting here with even more dangerous variants of the, the virus. In fact, the, the actual opposite is correct. All viruses mutate all the time. And the more people there are with the virus in them, the more chances the virus has to mutate because every time it multiplies, there's a chance for a mutation. So to prevent as many mutations as possible, you should keep people from getting infected. And if no one is infected, of course, there's nowhere for the virus to evolve anymore. He also claims that getting immunized via the vaccine will suppress the quote-unquote natural immune system, making us weaker in the long run. <laughs> I mean, you can understand if that sounds like it makes sense, but it's absolutely wrong. It's quite the contrary. <laughs> it is the contrary, because the vaccines themselves actually don't fight the virus. It just teaches your own, if you will, natural immune system, if you want to call it that, how to defend you against the virus. Yeah, what what to defend you against. Yeah, exactly. That's, it gives you an exactly. example. This yeah. this is what you should look out for. It's 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 like a wanted poster. It's like right. this is what we need to fight. Right. So there's no <laughs> business of the vaccine replacing your natural immune system. That's nonsense. And there's even more nonsense uh, that he claims. But in the end, he argues that the the current vaccines will create a disaster uh, that will make everything worse. uh, And instead we should, and here comes the big killer eventually, Uh, you should use his vaccine, (laughs) (laughs) which is his own invention. Of course. A so-called, quote-unquote, universal vaccine Mm -hmm. that uses the body's innate immune system to kill the virus. And he has a patent for it, he says, except he doesn't. Because if you check it, he has two patent applications who both expired before any publication was made. So he has nothing. (laughs) And also, did I mention... This guy, he's a veterinarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Don't don't listen to him. I mean, there's nothing wrong with veterinarians, but he's not an immunologist. So he's just making shit up. But you know, the thing is that even if he's an, a general veterinarian, he should know better. Def- that it's oh. it's a, he's he's completely mixing up two things. One of them is antibiotic resistance, mm-hmm. and he's right. bringing in the idea of antibiotic resistance and and using it for the problem of fighting against viruses it's two completely different things that's right but that makes it doesn't work the same way but that makes it plausible <laughs> if you if you haven't looked into the facts mm. and especially if you have a tendency to be a little suspicious against what the authorities do mm-hmm. then you you are likely to listen to this kind of arguments and they could sound appealing mm. so that's why i thought it was uh, important to bring it up yeah right good Glad you did. So, <laughs> for being one of the more potentially convincing cranks out there, Gert van den Bosse, or however it's pronounced, <laughs> Dutch veterinarian and not an immunologist, gets today's prize for being really wrong. Well deserved. Indeed it is. Guys, I just had an idea. Mm-hmm. We have listeners from many, many different countries. Would you mind, dear listeners, setting us straight with pronunciations? in the form of audio recordings. Yes. So if you hear something on the show that we managed to butcher in a way, or we didn't quite get the right pronunciation, please let us know. So send in an audio file with the proper pronunciation and we would be 
absolutely delighted to to try and mimic that on the show and 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 use it and of course we will reference you if you're willing to to give your name as well great so great idea yeah yeah <laughs> after all this is this is a european show and and what's the best about europe is the diversity in every way so yeah all right thank you very much pontus thank you uh, for that catch and uh that concludes the show but of course as usual before we finish we need a quote And this quote comes from um no name guy. Uh you probably never heard of him. <laughs> Galileo Galilei. Who's that? <laughs> uh, I don't know. He's lying in a in an unrecognizable tomb somewhere in Florence. Yeah. What he said is much more important. <laughs> in the sciences, the authority of thousands of opinions is not worth as much as one tiny spark of reason in one individual. Besides, the modern observations deprive all former writers of any authority, since if they had seen what we see, they would have judged as we judge. Ah, great. Tiny spark of reason. I like that. I, if yeah. we start a new podcast, I think it should be called that. Mm. <laughs> Tiny spark of reason? <laughs> yeah. I like that. Mm. I would go for it. All right. Okay. If we decide that uh, the, the name Skeptic. Have you had that... Oh no, you you haven't because both of your organizations are called something else. Yeah, are called something yeah. else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we have recently picked up that debate again about being skeptics because the anti-vaxxers, the COVID deniers, the flat earthers, they all call themselves skeptics. Yeah. So it has been absolutely worn off. Yeah. This name skeptic. So we need to do something about that. Yeah. Spark and, of uh, reason. That could be a good name. Spark of reason. Yeah. I do like that. Okay. <laughs> good idea. All right. But that really is the end of our show. Thank you very much, Annika. And thank you, Pontus, for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Uh, many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Bis dann. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Shrub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe